This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or... Like sort of understatement or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R One O Two Point Seven FM. I never get sick of that intro. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, three triple R's weekly polycultural loving and group hug session for the pioneers and perpetrators of a permaculture-powered future. Tonight, we will be talking via Skype to London with Professor Stephen Keane about the state of play in the financial world today through a lens of debt and deflation and negative interest rates. We'll be questioning on questioning him on these things we will also take a close look under the microscope at that most strange creature the circus ringmaster of modern madness the economist as always co-conspirator with a mind as powerful as an east coast storm surge the omnipotent adam grubb (laughs) broken broken any cliffs lately (laughs) no no just um no no i've been yeah like intellectually more like a light breeze Oh, nice. Everyone likes a light breeze, hey? <laughs> I love a light breeze. Yeah. 21 and a light breeze, perfect. And uh, joining us on uh, the rotating chair from her coastal bunker beach house where the surf would surely be thumping along, the fantabulous Sarah Coles. Good day to you. How are you? I'm okay. Just quickly worth mentioning to listeners, you won't be playing in the Community Cup this year. You've um, taken a hiatus. Yeah, I've taken time off to pursue my pro surfing career. Yeah, yeah. But I'll be back next year. Right on. Because um, statistically, every time you've played in the Community Cup, the megahertz have won. <laughs> yeah, but statistically, every goal that the Rock Dogs got was because I did something wrong. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, that challenges my worldview and I won't have it. <laughs> And uh, the bloke who can tune us spoke, the bicycle whisperer, weekly panellist and all-round gentleman, Jed McCartney. Evening all. How are you going? I'm all right. I'm all right. It's um, Criterium du Dauphiné week. So uh, all the uh, big boys are out having a little play for about six days, uh, loosening their legs up, working out whether they're better than each other or not to get ready for the tour. Criterium du Dauphiné sounds either like a kinder kid made it up or it's a sort of strange digital biscuit by Arnott's. It does, doesn't it? I yeah. have no idea where the name comes from. But, um, <laughs> they cruise around France... Right around some big hills. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, Very exactly. nice. Digital Biscuit. That was the name of your um, new wave band back in your... Back in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Digital <laughs> Biscuit. Your, your pre-heavy metal days. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, something happened sometimes around 88. Yeah. Like Anthrax, Slayer, all those guys kicked in. Um, yeah. Because I'm eternal, immortal. Uh, what caught our eye this week? Dudes, we uh, talk about this each week when we kick off the show. What do we got? Who would like to go first? Uh, I can go first if you want. Go for. Um, have you recently read anything that completely challenged your beliefs? Either of you. Yes. The awesome. Bible. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you're more Christian or less Christian? Oh, I just think the loaves and fishes is a bit of bullshit, really. I like loaves and fishes. Fish sandwiches. I don't mind Job. Okay. I find that believable. Yeah. What nice about one. you? Have you seen? Oh, a bit of an aside, but there is a particular vegan restaurant in Fitzroy that has an upside down cross, <laughs> and it says eat in the horizontal plane and vegan in the vertical with the yeah. A in the middle. Right. And uh, I did think whether that, that was like an anti-Christian vegan symbol. And the loaves and the fishes came to mind. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Jesus was certainly, yeah, not, what, what do you call it when you eat just fish and... Piscatarian. Piscatarian. Mm. At, yeah, at best. Piscatarian at best. Yeah. Mm. Uh, what were we talking about? Oh, the <laughs> article. Yes. This one was one of those, uh, it was on the New Matilda, and it was by Jeff Russell, uh, and the article was called The Price of Green, MacArthur River Mine and Solar Versus Nuclear. So it's a pretty lengthy article. But the main breakdown, he introduces this article by saying solar energy might be free, but harvesting it is very costly both in dollar terms and on the environment. So we understand that because you can't just grab the sun out of thin air and put it in your toaster and make your toast. Although you can probably make toast under the sun if you knew how to... Hmm. Yeah, I digress. So he, he kicks the boots in a little bit at the beginning of the article. He, he mentions that the Australian Greens leader, Richard Di Natale, stood before the altar of his large bank of lead-acid batteries and announced with messianic fervour, this is the future. This article goes on to take a very, very sharp and very detailed look at just what's involved in creating photovoltaic cells, uh, wind turbine towers, and so on. Um, and he makes no qualms about it. He says uh, sunshine may be considered a renewable energy source, but the resources needed to harvest it are the same as for any other energy source. They involve land and mines and tailing dams and metals and smelting and concrete and trucks and bulldozers, the whole gamut. And also... This is the real kicker, but because sunshine and wind are both intermittent and unpredictable, it's best to squirrel away what you harvest, which means more mines, smelting, tailing dams, trucks, etc., to make the batteries. So why did this challenge my thinking? I am aware of all of those things already, but it was sort of one of those things that are sometimes relegated to the idea that if we're utilising photovoltaic cells and solar storage but reducing heavily our expectation of what we can use and, as Samuel Alexander would say, simplifying life, maybe that's a good step. And the thing is, as I went along, and I went along and I went along through this article, he started to bust out some really phenomenal numbers and statistics. And, yeah, he discussed different things like, uh, you know, what are we using for these batteries? We're using zinc, we're using lead, we're using cobalt, we're using all these things, molten salt, etc., Finally, he gets to the thing, and Jeff Russell admittedly has been um, carrying the torch for nuclear power for quite some time, and he actually goes on to suggest in this article that the environmental impact of actually running nuclear um, reactors and harvesting uranium in Australia is a far less land-intense and a far less um, environmentally catastrophic and toxifying practice than using solar and photovoltaic. He basically says here at one stage, he basically points out that the, the, the toxicity that's created by rare earth minerals creating photovoltaics, etc., is massive. And yet, at the same time, when it comes to nuclear waste and those, those sorts of things, uh, no one's actually ever died from that in Australia, and the regulations around it are incredibly tight and constricted. And the land space 
I'm not. We, well, we don't have we don't have nuclear power in Australia. No, no, but the land space potentially to have mm. um, all of our electricity. Oh. Um, me, it's something like a one to six hundred and thirty-seven ratio. If you were going to go full photovoltaic and battery storage, mm. just the photovoltaic. Uh, Solar farms alone yeah. would take up something like 637 times the um, space required, and I think that was based on using their molten salt storage. There's a shitload of, de- a heck of a lot of detail in this article, <laughs> um, and I reckon I would like to make sure we put this up as a link on our page and probably even on our Facebook page. And again, it's not because I'm going to wave the flag and say that I've just turned pro nuclear, but I read this through about three mm. or four times. It, um it sounds interesting, but people have died in Australia from nuclear testing. Does that count? Missile testing. Yeah. And so, yes, but that's, that was different to what he was saying here. Uh, and I'm not trying to defend him. <coughs> I haven't been bought or... Actually, they backed the truck up to my house of money. Um, there's too much for this in this article for me to really cover on air and really genuinely give it what it needs. But he talks here about the uh, just the sheer weight of power that can be... Um, there's something like 148 terawatt hours annually, 60% of Australia's totally ele- total electricity demand. That would be the electricity that would be supplied from 280 tonnes of uranium. Oh, sorry, hang on, I've just misread that. 280 tonnes of uranium is taken to power a South Korean APR-1400 reactor, so the range's output over the last decade could supply about 13.45 of these reactors annually. And that, that's a lot of Australia's electricity, presumably. Yes, right. it is indeed. Um, um, I'm happy to forego my uh, what caught my eye and keep, let's keep digging into this. Shit. All righty. Well, yeah, because mm. mine was complicated anyway. But this is, this is, yeah, this is challenging. I mean, certainly renewable energies are diffuse, whereas mm. fossil fuel has been concentrated nicely through millions of years of geological activity. So... Our impact, our footprint on the earth when we put a hole in the ground is a lot smaller than the huge expanse of solar panels that would be required mm. to um, to replace it. I mean, even the huge open-cut mines in, in Gippsland are probably pale into comparison with what you would need uh, to generate that electricity. But that said, if what you're saying is true, it would be kind of like... I mean, obviously, there's some environmental impact to what we're doing. Uh, yep. My understanding is that at least with solar panels, the energy return on energy invested is greater. Like people would say back in the 80s, it takes more energy to make one mm. than you get back in the life of it. Mm. I don't think that's still true with no. modern technologies. But maybe what you're saying in terms of like, you know, wastage and um, pollution pollutants from the factories that's not something that's incorporated into those figures yeah presumably well there was the number i just gave you before about 13.45 apr 1400 um, nuclear reactors they would generate as much electricity annually as 637 ningans which is um, australia's largest solar farm mm. um, and it covers uh, we'll be covering 159,250 hectares without needing any batteries so um the that many Wind, uh, solar farms is something like 81,000 MCGs. And if you join them end-to-end, as he says here, you have a 41-lane highway stretching from Sydney to Perth and then back to Sydney and then back to Perth. Mm. So that was... This is what... Yeah, I, look, I'm, I'm not saying that I am 100% converted to nuclear. I'm not saying... This just really, really challenged me and I kept yeah. reading it through and trying to make sense of it all. 
Well, one thing that you can always come back to is that no matter what the technology, just using less of it is going to be better. There's, yeah. there's no such... You know, we've, we had a client, he's, he um, was showing off his solar-powered clothes dryer, which wasn't a clothesline. Exactly. It was, mm. you know, the full setup with with uh, PVs on the roof, mm. batteries, and plugging in his electric dryer too. That's yeah, a, that's a, an environmental a really good disaster. Use, a really good use of solar and wind, for example, is to design a home that can be heated in winter by the sun mm. and cooled in summer by prevalent breezes mm. or or air movement and all sorts of things like that. Mm. So, and that's that doesn't require storage or. Diffusion. I think I've spoken enough. Would you like to? Um, yeah. I found there was an article in the Washington Post. I've been getting into the Washington Post because I just watched all the president's men. (laughs) (laughs) I know it was back in 72 or whenever it was, but they did a good job back then and they're going okay now. So there's this article... Over a third of coral is dead in parts of Great Barrier Reef, scientists say. There's heaps of articles all over the Australian media at the moment about it as well. Um, so basically they're saying that a third of the Great Barrier Reef is bleached. So I'd, I wasn't even really sure what that meant because I thought that... I did think that coral for a while was a plant, Adam. I thought that. I'm sorry. I only recently found out that it's an animal. Yeah. And that it has a symbiotic relationship with, with algae. With the plant, with algae. Yeah. yeah. So bleaching is when the water is too hot for too long so the algae leaves the coral. Mm. And that is when the colour leaves the coral and it's left with the white skeleton that's what the coral um, exudes, some mm-hmm. kind of calcium carbonate thing, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so they're saying the main cause of coral bleaching is global warming, which has caused rise in the temperature of the ocean mm-hmm. so it's kind of depressing all right yeah it's really depressing yeah. so uh they're saying there's other causes like pollution overfishing crown of thorns starfish cyclones but increased ocean temperatures are the main cause yeah um so i don't know and we're to committed to it. those temperature changes now yeah, they're in the bag. Yeah. yeah. The um, article depressed me so much that I thought I'd feel better if I scrolled down and read the comments section. Mm-hmm. <gasps> and you know what? I did. I felt worse and I Great felt better. Great strategy. There was one that said, humans squabble while Gaia burns. That was good. Um, that's the best you have. Third grade taunts, you must be a trumpet. That was a weird insult that I liked. And my favourite one is, are you a coral? How would you know what's an alarming temperature rise to that life form? <laughs> no. <laughs> a troll, like unscientific <laughs> troll. you got to love it. You've got to love it. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Triple R is where you're at. Greening the Apocalypse is the show. Tonight we are talking with Professor Steve Keane. He is head of the School of Economics, Politics and History at Kingston University, London, and he's one of the few economists who anticipated the great financial crisis and says that mainstream economists failed to anticipate it, not because it was an unpredictable black swan event, but because their theories give them blind spots which cause them to ignore the cause of the crisis, that banks 
were lending too much money to finance speculation rather than investment. He's also one of the few prominent economists with a bit of ecological literacy, which is why we love him and his book, Debunking Economics, uh, now in an updated and expanded edition, but first published in 2001, explores all these issues and more. Welcome to Greening the Apocalypse, Stephen Keane. Thank you. Good to be here. Brilliant to have you. Uh, now, so y- while you are a professor of uh, economics, you spend a lot of your time debunking. When you're not, m- when you're not doing original research, uh, you debunk a lot of mainstream economic thought. So uh, you could split it up in a way, the ways that you talk about that, and one of them is to say that economists don't even understand how money works very well and debt... But maybe we could come back to that. Is, would it be fair to say you think that most economists, mainstream economists, don't really understand nature and the system in which we really live? Oh, absolutely. But no, they've, they've started with a set of uh, concepts which were okay if you were doing them back in the, uh, the late 19th century. Um, where even though we had done a fair bit of pollution in localised areas like parts of England and uh, parts of Europe, <clears throat> uh, you didn't have to worry about a full feedback affecting your very capacity to produce output. We've now reached that stage, and in the meantime, there's been no real increase in the sophistication of how they think about the relationship between the economy and the environment. And, in fact, they uh, a typical sign of how little they know is that they think you can solve the environmental problem using market signals, which effectively regards the environment as part of the market economy, when clearly it's the other way around. So the, the, the economy exists only, be, only within the environment. Yeah, and you have to be aware of the laws of thermodynamics and, 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 the, and the necessity for energy to be able to produce output in the very first instance. And one of the, the, one of the main reasons for the blind spot comes with their model of production because they start with the idea of output being a function of labour and capital and energy doesn't play any explicit role in that concept. So they try to bring it in by saying, well, look, energy is just another form of capital, which would be true if you could actually make energy. But according to the first law of thermodynamics, you can't make energy. You can only use what's available and transform it into a different uh, different form, generating work in the process. And by doing so, you necessarily generate waste, both physical waste and wasted energy, and you simply can't reduce that to zero. But their mental picture is about the possibility of having a completely efficient system where there is no waste, uh, which is their idea of supply and demand being you know, in equilibrium, then what they call uh, consumer surplus and, and uh, producer surplus are maximised, and there's no waste at that stage, what they call a deadweight loss. This, this mental framework makes it almost impossible for them to understand the fact that when you use energy, you necessarily generate waste, and you mm. can't generate production without energy in the first place. So they really are well, well behind reality. Yeah. So laws of thermodynamics they sort of explain how you put petrol in you're not going to get petrol out the back there's no perpetual motion machine and earth if you like is taking you know our primary energy source is sunshine and that's not even in their models but basically the whole economy runs on it well most of our listeners probably wouldn't have a problem understanding that Um, although because you know we also don't read economic textbooks we might be unaware that that fundamental process that fuels the planet is not incorporated in a lot of the mainstream economic thinking but might be even more shocked where if they were to read your work which suggests that the economists the mainstream economists don't even really think that the amount of money in circulation or the amount of debt is important and a lot of your work 
is a, is critiquing them, I guess, almost on their own terms. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit why uh, why debt is important to an economy? Yeah, well, fundamentally, you know, just just like your own spending as an individual uh, involves money you've currently got as you know, from your, what you're earning as income. Uh, plus, if you swipe your credit card, then your spending is going to be the sum of the two. And economists have persuaded themselves that. Um, the former one you have to add up, but the latter change your credit, you can cancel out because if you swipe in your credit card, well, somehow that means that I can spend less money and my less, the smaller capacity to spend balances out your larger capacity to spend, so there's no effect from credit on the economy in the aggregate. And that is literally the mental model they've got in their minds. It's more elaborate than that, of course, but that's, that's the basic idea they have, that credit means a transfer of spending power. It doesn't mean creation of new spending power. Now, this is empirically utterly false, and even the Bank of England has come out with a wonderful paper in 2014 saying that banks are not... Um, intermediaries in lending. In other words, they don't arrange a loan from one person who's a saver to another person who's a borrower. They actually originate loans, and because they originate loans, that actually adds to demand. Now, that's what I have been had in my mental framework for 30 years, ever since I discovered Minsky's financial instability hypothesis, and that's what I put into mathematical models that gave me some warning of the crisis coming. Uh, but because they leave it out of their thinking, they, they measure the level of debt, but they think it's economically irrelevant. So, and, so we had uh, Nicole Foss on a few no, months no, ago. No the money system and the economics at all. We, we had Nicole Foss on a, a few months back, Steve, and she was saying that when banks create or when they take give us a loan, they create the money out of thin air. And I was kind of feeling like oh, our, our our listeners might think we've delved into some conspiratorial type thinking, but Professor yeah. Steve Keen, head of School of Economics at Kingston. Is that is is that correct? When when we get a loan, the banks just make the money on the spot. Yeah, it's it's uh, we, we we tend to think about banks as though they're a warehouse where somebody you know goes and dumps a load of gravel uh, in it, and then if we want to use it, we're to go borrow the gravel from them at the meantime. And if they want the gravel back, there's going to be a real problem. I'm using that as an analogy because a good friend of mine, who's a mainstream economist but very much aware of the role of money, Michael Kumoff, used precisely that analogy in the Bank of England paper recently that the way the mainstream thinks about money is as if it's gravel that gets stored in warehouses we call banks. Uh, what actually happens is if you go to a bank with a proposal for borrowing money, they'll ask, what's your collateral? Maybe. You know, what can you back up the request for a loan for? Um, but they'll then say, okay, that sounds like a good idea. Here's a million dollars. And by the way, you owe us a million dollars. So they write a million dollars as an asset for them on the loan side, which is an asset for them. They put a million dollars in your bank account, which is a liability for them. And by doing it, they both boosted their assets and boosted their liabilities. And fundamentally, money is the sum of bank liabilities plus cash we have in our pockets. So they've created money. And it isn't a case of them needing to get it from somewhere else. It literally is simply book, bookkeeping that it makes it possible. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you, th- their model of reality doesn't, in- doesn't include this, which seems pretty fundamental. Uh-huh. Um and it doesn't include a lot of uh, environmental processes and oh. s- possibly as consequence of these things, they didn't see the global financial crisis coming, uh, but you did. Uh, do you want to fill us in with just where you, where you think things are standing at the moment? In terms of the global, the global economy? Yeah. 
Well, we, we, the crisis was caused by a, a slowdown in the rate of growth of debt. That's what, that's all it takes to cause a crisis when you have levels of private debt hitting one and one point five, and in Australia's case, more than twice GDP. Um, so that's that's what I, that gave me the indication the crisis was approaching, an exponential increase in the level of debt compared to GDP, which couldn't be sustained, and therefore when it slowed down, we'd have a, a gigantic economic slowdown because the level of private debt in 2007 was uh, was the highest it had been since 1945, and I now know it's the highest actually in recorded history. So that's what caused the crisis, and the aftermath of the crisis in the countries which have had a crisis, obviously America being the prime example, the level of private debt has fallen somewhat compared to GDP, but it's still at substantial levels. So America, for example, began the post-war period with private debt being roughly 30% of GDP. It hit 1.7 times GDP shortly after the crisis because the, the, rate, the rate slows down, the level still continues growing for a while. Hit 1.7 times times GDP. It's now at about 1.4, 1.45 times. So it's fallen by about 25% of GDP. But it's still, when you look at the data and compare it and uh, normalise the poorer quality data we had back at the time of the Great Depression to the better quality data that the Federal Reserve records now, the level of debt now still exceeds the peak level that occurred back in the Great Depression. So what that means is there's going to be very little credit growth in that economy. Uh, any, any increase in demand from credit is going to run out very rapidly. So they're going to get a range of little booms and little slumps again, which is precisely where Japan has been for the last 25 years. And on that front, I wasn't at all amazed to see the slowdown occur in Americans' employment data just in the last, last set of figures because the rate of growth of credit is already starting to slow down and we'll never see credit growth after the crisis like we saw before. So that's the countries that have had a crisis. Countries like Australia that haven't had one have managed to avoid a crisis by continuing to borrow. So Australia's private debt level, and this is using back international settlements figures which make them comparable across countries, Australia's debt level back when the crisis hit was about 1.7 times GDP. It's now 2.1 times GDP. And well, credit is actually contributing about demand equivalent to 15% of GDP every year in Australia right now. Now, when that slows down, even if it slows down just to the same rate of growth of the economy, that'll mean about, in aggregate, about an 8 or 10% fall in demand in the Australian economy. And it's not the only one facing that probability. Canada's another absolutely certain candidate for a crisis. China, too. And Sweden and Norway also figure as possible countries which are going to have a debt slowdown having continued borrowing through the financial crisis. So I talk about the first bunch being the, the, uh, the walking debt of debt and the second bunch being the zombies to be. And it leaves a handful of countries that aren't, li aren't likely to have a debt crisis, including Germany as one. But uh, in, in total, it means that once the other countries that are heading towards a, a debt brick wall hit that brick wall, then about 70% of the global economy is going to be basically stuck with a debt overhang and the other 30% isn't going to be enough to lift it up and pull it out of it. So permanent stagnation until we reduce the levels of private debt. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR. 
Triple R is where you are and Greening the Apocalypse is the program. Live from London, we are speaking to Professor Stephen Keane. Uh, Stephen, we touched on, just before we went to that last track, we touched on this uh, fairly unfounded moment that we find ourselves in economically at the moment. That is the uh, decision of some countries' central banks to implement negative interest rates. Now, by negative interest rates, uh, you know, that's the idea that you might previously have put a thousand dollars uh in the bank and over time the interest would accrue and create more although in this case the negative interest rate means that there's not really a motive to bank your money because it will actually lose value below its deposit value is that the case and um is this a sign that things are quite rough at the moment sign that again that the people in charge don't know how the bloody system works because it's in fact what's actually happening is they're not when central banks say we're going to impose negative interest rates they're not putting that on your deposit account they're putting that on the accounts that the banks themselves have at the central bank which is where they store their reserves apart from the bit they've got in cash in the vaults when you and i go down and want money out of an atm so um <clears throat> that 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 means that the banks have got these accounts that they use for their own exchanges between each other. That's what reserves actually do. And the bank is saying, well, rather than letting you deposit those at the central bank for free, we're going to put a negative rate on them. Now, that wouldn't matter so much if they were back at the level they were prior to the crisis, because before the crisis, the banks maintained almost trivial levels of reserves because they're not an income earning asset they'd rather make them as small as possible and uh, and then they're trivial they're just barely the amount of reserves there is just barely above what's required by law well the first response of the central banks to the crisis was to pump that up and the in the false belief that economists have that the reserves enable lending they've got absolutely no role in lending and that's what the bank of england has said very emphatically and very clearly in that recent paper i mentioned but anyway what it means is banks like for example in england have 300 billion pounds of reserves more than they need now they're not charging negative rates here they, that's happening in europe of course but similar thing applies over there i think they've got a level of excess reserves of, of the order of three or five hundred billion euros and they're now being told we're going to charge you minus 0.25 and minus 5, et cetera, et cetera, on those rates. What that means from the bank's point of view is that an asset which was neutral beforehand is now a negative for them. So they suddenly have this huge amount of money that they didn't want anyway, that they don't, they can't employ. <laughs> and the, the banks are saying, the central banks, we're going to charge you negative on that well if you've got one asset which has suddenly turned negative on you what do you do you turn to the other you've got two possibilities one is the naive one economists think is going to happen that you'll start passing on those negative rates to your depositors so you would charge depositors money for putting money in their in their personal bank accounts like you and me garbage if that actually happens you know what would happen you'd go and take your money out of the bank you'd put it somewhere that gave you a positive rate or promised a positive rate so the banks aren't going to do that what they'll do instead is they've got captive uh, loan people have provided loans that have their mortgages with the banks uh, with floating rate mortgages and floating rate uh, overdrafts and so on and credit cards they'll put up the rates on those cards and on those loans so rather than meaning the public gets lower cost money because of negative rates it'll mean the public gets higher cost money and that's what's actually happened in switzerland already so this is one of these stupid policies that is being put in place by people who don't understand how the money system actually works and yet because we've got phds in economics we treat them as if they know what they're doing well you yourself uh do economic modeling with software oh. and so uh -huh. you have you think about ways that it could be redesigned uh. Um, do, it, do you have a set of prescriptions, something <laughs> that could uh, make, <laughs> yeah, make the global yeah, system we, a bit more functional? 
Yeah, the problem is the, the problem is, is is the level of private debt's too high, and they're not going to solve the problem by encouraging more lending, which is what in fact the private the central banks are trying to do right now. You simply have to reduce the private debt, and the way you can do that is that the private banks create money and create debt at the same time. The government, when it creates money by running a deficit. Uh, or by funding itself from the central bank, doesn't create debt that we have to pay. It creates a debt which is actually internal to the government. And, of course, the government can pay that debt effectively with, with double-entry bookkeeping. It's, it's simply a tra transfer between one wing of government, the central bank, and the other wing, the treasury. So it would be possible for the search of the government to run what I'm calling a modern debt jubilee. And that would be where it used its capacity to create money. And you, of course, you, if you've ever got a tax return, uh, back in Australia, of course, you get tax returns directly into bank account. So that's the government putting money directly into your account. It's got the capacity to do that. And you could make, say, say the government would go, it was going to give a cash injection to everybody, rather like the Rudd, uh, the bonus Rudd gave back at the time of the financial crisis, like a tax rebate. Uh, unilaterally across the country, everybody gets the same amount, so you don't benefit people who are in debt over people who are savers. But anybody who has debt, that money is used to reduce their debt level. They don't get to spend it. Whereas people who save money get a cash injection. And that way you could reduce the level of private debt and not depress the economy at the same time because every other way of reducing private debt involves taking money out of circulation and reducing demand in the economy. So it's feasible to do it. And I'm pleased to see I'm finally getting people reproaching me about how it might be done. But that would be the only effective way to do it. And you'd have to also change bank lending so banks didn't lend to Ponzi schemes like the Australian housing market on the scale they do anymore. And uh, the banks could also be profitable by lending to entrepreneurs, which at the moment they can't do. So it isn't just a one-off change, but it is feasible to get out of this trap. We just have to recognise what actually is the nature of the trap in the first place, and that's too much private debt. So it's a matter of honesty, Stephen. You just said then that the banks don't seem to be lending to entrepreneurs. Why was that? Oh, because if you lend to an entrepreneur, you've got an 80% chance they're going to go bankrupt and you lose your principal. Uh, but if in, on, the, on, the one, on the one that succeeds, you get just interest payment on the principal you've extended. So it's a losing proposition to banks to lend to entrepreneurs. I'd prefer to make it possible for them to use what I call EELs, entrepreneurial equity loans, where they give loans to entrepreneurs but take an equity position in them. So four out of five fail. That's made up by the one who succeeds and gets a dramatic increase in the value of the capital, which the bank benefits from. So tricks like that could be used to redefine lending. It's rather like what's called Islamic finance, as it, as it should be practiced, which is where the lender uh, only takes a takes an equity stake in the business rather than taking a debt stake. So it's feasible to do that sort of thing and change the nature of lending. But we, we can't allow banks to create money for Ponzi schemes, which is all they're doing right now. Indeed. A Ponzi scheme for listeners is more or less like a pyramid scheme, mm. and oh. and I think you're comparing the Australian housing market a little bit to something like that. Do do you have models? You mentioned earlier that uh, mainstream economists don't consider the environment; they don't understand thermodynamics. So, like, just basically fundamentals about physics. Um, do you oh. have models for economics that incorporate those things? Working on them. In fact, I've just actually worked out how to how to lock energy into a production function in an intrinsic way, so you can't get rid of it. So at the moment, the attempts people have made to model energy just treat energy as a third factor of production, which of course means that if you set that factor to zero, then you've you've, you've incorporated energy and ignored it at the same time. So 
I've worked out a way to bring a, a model of production that necessarily includes energy. You can't get rid of it, and you also generate a part of what you generate is the waste output. So I'm working on uh, on writing up a paper on that front right now. I think I'll publish it on my blog. So at least I've got <laughs> my ownership of the idea is is stated before it turns up in an, an academic paper. But yeah, it's possible to do that. And it's just a sign of how long we've taken to get our heads around the role of energy uh, that was take, taken to, you know, two and a half centuries after the physiocrats pointed out its importance before we even try to incorporate it properly in their economic modelling. I'm not the only person doing this sort of work, by the way. There's a whole bunch of people who are trying to build an energy-aware economics. But it looks like I've got the run on people on actually how, how to bring it into what we call a parametric economic model. Well, well, that's a relief. Other people are at it because, but at the same time, since it's not incorporated into mainstream economic, e- economics, and these people sort of it, they, they set policy, they make decisions which infect every single person on the planet. Uh, oh. Where presumably this kind of thinking that you're talking about, it, I mean, it sounds like it could only get a chance of getting incorporated into policy if there's a crisis. Unfortunately true. There's no way we're going to be listened to before a crisis occurred, which is one reason why I wrote Debunking Economics when I did back in 2000, because I could feel that something appeared to be possible to happen. And I hedged my bets back in the 2000 edition of the book. Um, but that's why I came out with it, knowing it would be read more if there was a crisis. Of course, we had the 2000 NASDAQ crash, and that gave me a certain amount of attention because of the arguments. But I knew that you'd take a full-flown depression-style crisis before you got listened to. And even though we've had one, the evidence is that the mainstream still won't let their beliefs go unless it persists indefinitely. And that's what's actually happening. Uh, the crisis is going to be 10 years old as of August of next year. Mm. And they're still in a slump. They still can't understand why they're coming with these r- ridiculous concepts, what they call secular stagnation, to explain it. It's actually credit stagnation. Of course, they never, they didn't see credit having a role in the growth period. They can't see where credit has a role in the, in the crisis afterwards either. So they're completely blind to all this stuff. But at least now other people are being aware that that's the case. So treasuries, central banks, government agencies, in fact, uh, are stating, well, it looks like we have been failed by the economics profession, so maybe we need to think more broadly. So there is hope, but it's taken a decade of failure before we've actually seen those glimmerings of people being willing to say, well, the economists call themselves experts on the economy, but it appears they're experts on a model of the economy that leaves out the essential aspects of the environment and money. Not a good start. Let's let other people come in there and see if they can do better. Well, it has been an absolute uh, pleasure and a whirlwind to talk to you, Steve Keane. Before we um, send you off, though, most of the time on this show, we actually talk about positive kind of solutions and uh, a lot of it is to do with just getting back to production and lo- relocalization and taking care of each other in, small, in, in our local communities and growing as much food as possible and mending things. Um, we for everyone that's just been listening and feels completely overwhelmed, like, what do we do? Um, would you, do you think we're on the right track there? Yeah, you are. I mean, we, we're, I think we're, we're in an overshoot. We've gone past the ecological carrying capacity of the planet. We're bound to face a shock. And the Great, the great Barrier Reef may be the first sign of that. Um, so we, we have to reverse direction at some stage. Agent and talking about positive solutions is at least getting our mind around the fact that we may have to think about them. Mm. And uh, in 
Now, the, the tragedy of humanity seems to learn after crises, not before. So we're doing something worthwhile, but that, won't, that doesn't mean we're going to stop having a, having a crisis. I think we're facing one, oh, certainly. I think it's absolutely certain we'll face a huge ecological crisis. And that may be the only thing that helps us get out of this financial crisis, because when you have an existential threat, you stop worrying about what it might look like in terms of the debts uh, uh, that the government accumulates over time. Well, Steve, if uh, people want to find out more about your work, uh, what are the websites? The best one's debtdeflation.com slash blogs. I don't maintain it properly. I never have time, but that's, that's where most of my stuff goes up. And you'll find me on YouTube as well. Prof Steve Keane is my YouTube channel. And, of course, Kingston University being the centre where we're trying to develop a, a new uh, ecologically aware and money aware approach to economic theory. All right, well, we'll also... Is that ideaeconomics.org? Yeah, and I do economics as well. Yeah, that's uh, the other uh, sort of public group that I go no through. We'll create links to those. Now, we have to say goodbye to you, S- Professor Steve Keane. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. And RRR is where you are. Um, I just quickly wanted to touch on something before we go to the wrap-up. At the top of the program, I mentioned an article that had challenged me quite a bit, uh, in which the case for nuclear energy was made quite compelling in an article on New Matilda by Jeff Russell. We'll put a link to that up on our show page and probably even on our Facebook page as well. Uh, SBS are currently running a documentary series called Waking the Dragon, which is about the history of uranium, and it has mentioned in it the utter devastation of Chernobyl, of Three Mile Island, and and more recently in um, our... In our time, Fukushima. Uh, as I said, I've not gone pro-nuclear. I'm simply continuing, as I do, to ask questions, and I'm trying to find answers. Um, if I've got, if I have a role in hosting this show with Adam, Sarah, and Kate, and if that role can be summed up, then I think that is that we need to encourage questions and we need to encourage thought. Um, and those questions and that thinking doesn't necessarily take you to an answer. It will definitely take you on a journey of some sort. Uh, at the same time, I am willing to sit here, as I'm sure my co-hosts are each week, and admit to our own doubts and our own fragility and our ongoing curiosity. And so hopefully that is something that we are delivering to you, dear listeners. Thanks to Stephen Keane for Skyping up with us tonight. Thank you, Jed, for hitting the buttons in the correct sequence. Happy birthday for tomorrow. You're a trooper. And... Uh, Great for coming in, Colsey. Thank you. Thank you again for the opportunity. Love you. Uh, Adam, what's coming up next week? Well, actually, it's a good follow-up to tonight because we're going to be talking to Thea Kitchener, who is influenced by this kind of thinking, uh, but is doing a whole lot of positive stuff on the ground. So we're talking about non-monetary economies and community economies and, and all sorts of positive stuff. Awesome, awesome, awesome. We will see you next Tuesday. And until then, have all the fun. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.